I suffered from chronic UTIs and Dr. Kylie recommended a treatment plan in July and since then, six months later, not a single issue. I wish I would have asked her way sooner. Nicole. Picture this. The next time your doctor gets your labs done and tells you they're normal, you can smile and say thank you, then take them home and read those normal labs to yourself. You won't have to depend upon anyone else again. How? I'm going to teach you exactly how I read them in a very simple way so that no medical training and even the most brain-fogged patient can understand. Where can you get this life-changing education? The private podcast coming inside the Healing Beyond the Diagnosis membership. It's happening this fall, and if you want to transform your normal labs into answers, healing, and hope without depending on anyone else, come join the tribe. You can get all the details and register at drkylieburton.com backslash healing dash beyond dash the dash diagnosis. I also want to invite you to join a six week free to heal program that's right for you. We begin October 4th. Learn more and register at drkylieburton.com. Let's start celebrating your success next. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to the Beyond the Diagnosis podcast with me, Dr. Kylie. Today we are joined by Dr. Stephen Hussey. He is a chiropractor outside of Roanoke, Virginia. So if you're in that area, go check him out, go see him. If you are wanting better health, you can also find him at resourceyourhealth.com. But Stephen's biggest passion is the heart. And today we're going to talk about myths and facts about the heart. Welcome, Stephen. I'm excited to have you here and I'm excited to learn myself because this is not my area of expertise. This is definitely yours. First off, to get our, our conversation going, how did you end up with the heart of all yeah. organs in the body? Why that important one? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like many, uh, I guess, people interested in health and, and, and in the health space, it was my own health journey, you know, like So like when I was a young kid, uh, I had all these inflammatory conditions. Um, I had everything from asthma to allergies, chronic hives, IBS. I used to have like hives that break out of my body, like just huge hives. And then I really knew why, but I had all this inflammation in my body. Ultimately ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes at nine years old, uh, because that all that inflammatory processes, you know, triggered my body to attack itself and attack the cells that make insulin. So now I'm type one diabetic. So that kind of threw my parents and I into like this Western medical system, relying on that to manage these conditions. And it wasn't until college that I started to figure out that the way I live my life directly impacted my ability to manage health and these conditions and things like that. And because, you know, no doctors ever told me that, uh, that I could change my lifestyle and that would be easier. And so, you know, now all those inflammatory conditions are gone aside from the type one diabetes, which is kind of like collateral damage from all that stuff that was going on. Yeah, once and it's so, triggered, it's been triggered on. That's right. Yeah. And you know, there are there are some cases where if you intervene early, there's a case studies out of Hungary that they've reversed it um, with certain dietary protocols and things. Um, but now that it's been, you know, so many years for me, like the damage is done and and uh unless there's some crazy medical intervention, I'm gonna be type one diabetic for the foreseeable future. And so vitamin um, D. I love vitamin D for autoimmune diseases. Yeah, yeah. It sounds and, powerful. Uh, once you have one, you're more prone to have others, but not for me. So 
And then, uh, so yeah, being type one diabetic, I'd go to endocrinologists every three months as a kid and in high school and college. And, uh, you know, I'd see posters all over the place that said, you know, you're two to four times likely to get, you know, kidney disease and heart disease and all these things, all these kind of micro circulation diseases, you know? And, uh, so I asked my doctors why that is. And they said, well, higher blood sugars will damage the arteries and that kind of stuff. And so it's just been like my kind of, you know, thing that I just perk up and listen to every time I hear something about heart disease, I've just, I've taken note and gathered a lot of information. And yeah, so I, I did that for many, many years and then eventually got talked into joining social media and I did and started sharing some of this information I had about the heart, things that I'd read and learned. And, uh, and a lot of it was contradictory to what the conventional wisdom is and people seemed to like it. And so I kept doing it and, and now people kind of know me as this guy who talks about heart disease, not that I treat heart disease, but I, I just share information about it and people like it. The heart doctor, only you don't work on the heart. Fix exactly. it in other ways. You can find him on Instagram at Twitter at Dr. Stephen Hussey, H-U-S-S-E-Y. And you can learn more about the heart, but hey, let's learn more about the heart right now. So Stephen, you said you had, I know we have a lot of listeners with gut issues and, mm-hmm. and you said you had IBS. What was one of your biggest things that you did to reverse that? I can't pinpoint exactly because that was kind of one of the first things that went away. And that started to go away before I was even paying attention to what I was doing necessarily. I was just making some changes, but I'd say the biggest thing was just, you know, changing my diet from the standard American diet that I grew up on. Um, and even in college, I started, I started to try and make like better diet decisions, but I was eating at the cafeteria at school. So it was hard to make the best decisions there. Yeah. You know? And then. And you're and, a college student and it's just, you need yeah. food. Wherever yeah, you yeah. get food, you're going to get it. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I majored in health and wellness in college and there was this big push for like local and sustainable and, and better sources of food, you know? And so I would try and find those things and, and when I could afford it. And, uh, but then in college, I kept pushing more towards changing my diet and that seemed to have the biggest impact, but the gut issues were never really gone. So, I mean, they were way, way better to the point where, you know, I could, you know, pretty much live normal, but it was still like uncomfortable times, you know, um, until about, uh, I'd say two and a half years ago. And that was when I started a carnivore diet. I tried it for a little while. And that was the first time in my life that I had absolutely zero gut issues. Um, All meat, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And I did it for, you know, a year and a half or so. And I can't say that it made like huge dramatic changes besides that, besides the fact that I had zero gut issues for the first time in my life. And since I've gone back to eating plants and uh, a more varied diet, um, I still don't have any gut issues. They're still not back. So it's almost like I allowed my gut to heal with that diet. And then yeah. I could, now I don't know if it'll stay that way. The, you know, the longer time I, I'm eating plants, it was really dietary. There was no like supplement or, or, you know, therapeutic kind of thing that I did. It was, it was dietary stuff to fix that. Yeah. I love how you brought it. There was no supplement. It wasn't like I took this magic pill and things mm. went away because so oftentimes, especially in the alternative holistic functional world, whatever you want to call it, we reach for supplements. And we, I mean, I see patients that are taking duffel bags full of these supplements. And I'm like, why are you taking that? Why are you taking that? Well, I take, and it's always about targeting a specific symptom and it's always about survival. Whereas I'm come from the standpoint of, you know what? you're using that to survive. 
I want to use a couple supplements that will remove what's underlying causing all of those chaotic symptoms, no matter what symptom you Google searched. And then instead, you know, take L-carnitine for XYZ and, and all this madness, all this crazy stuff. But my supplement regimens are very, very simple. And it gets after those in root causes. So then you don't have to take supplements for the rest of your life to just survive. But when I started this, I, I never took a supplement growing up. It wasn't a thing in my family. Mm-hmm. And then I get into, and people are like bringing me thousands of dollars of supplements or showing me their shop, their cupboard as we're on Zoom calls. And I'm, and I'm thinking that's a lot of money for one. And two, that's a big survival kit. And it's not really much more than that. It's just a survival kit. So I love how you, you took it from a different approach and there wasn't a, there wasn't a pill. There was no magic supplement. I mean, the, the supplement world will tell you otherwise. They will tell you, you need, the, you need probiotics. And you have to take probiotics for the rest of your life. They'll tell you that. I disagree with it. And I know you do too. So yeah, it's, it's not true. Uh, supplements are designed to do exactly what they're labeled to do. Supplement your diet. Supplement a good diet. Right? Not provide you all your nutrients. Not so. replace it. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about this heart thing because heart is a big, important organ in the body. Um, I know my family has heart disease. My grandma, I swear she had, you know, nine lives, <laughs> but it was always in regards to the heart, whether it was heart attack or stroke or my other grandma, we discovered as they went in to do a, a little bypass surgery on her, that her heart was literally calcified to the point where the surgeon couldn't even put a needle through it. So she got diagnosed with stage four, stage four heart disease and was gone months later. Share with us one of the simple myths about the heart. There's a lot. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give you some options. You pick which one we do first. Okay. okay. Um, so some myths uh, I'd say are that saturated fat, red meat, cholesterol, those types of things cause heart disease. And there's a whole history there that is fascinating to go over. Another big myth is that all heart attacks happen because a blockage blocks some of the flow through a coronary artery and causes tissue to die. There are definitely situations where blockage is not present at all and a heart attack still happens. And then the third one, probably my favorite one, is that it's a myth is that the heart is the main mover of blood in the body, that it's forcefully pumping blood throughout the body and that, um, that that's, that's what its job is. That's not what its job is. And there's actually no way it could do that based on the size of the heart and how much force it can create. There's no way it could get blood throughout the entire body. So yeah, those are, those are the big. Let's start with the third, because you have me captivated. So I've never heard this. So teach me. (laughs) There's a lot of other physicians who talk about this. One is Dr. Branko first. One is Dr. Thomas Cowan. They talk about these things. There's a large body of evidence. So Dr. First wrote a book. It, it reads like a 200 page research paper if you're into that kind of thing, but it's, it's, no, not. <laughs> it's all this kind of information that, that basically there's, there's a lot of research that shows that the heart is not a pressure propulsion pump. So a pressure propulsion pump is a pump that, you know, sucks in water from uh, stagnant water from somewhere like a reservoir or a lake, and it forcefully pumps it somewhere else. And, you know, there's all these physicians and researchers in the 18 and 1900s doing all these studies. And no matter what they did, they couldn't reproduce a model with a pressure propulsion pump that acted like our cardiovascular system. The pressure would always collapse somewhere. They just couldn't recreate it no matter what they did. And uh, there's also interesting studies in dogs and now more very recently, like last year in chick embryos that show that when you stop the heart from beating, the blood continues to flow. 
for up to two hours in the dogs in the studies in the dogs that were done in like the 1960s. And, uh, and so we have to ask that question, why, or how does it continue to flow? Okay. And so this brings up this whole concept of what's called fourth phase water, uh, in the body. Fourth phase water is, is water in a, a fourth state, you know, that we were taught that there's solid liquid and gas, but there's actually a fourth phase. And it's kind of like, think of like jello. And so when water gets next to a hydrophilic surface and it, and it has sufficient energy, water will actually structure itself into this gel like substance. And this is, this is what's in our cells. It's why, you know, we're 70, 80% water, so to speak. And I don't slosh around like a waterbed. I have some structure to me. It's because the, the water in my body in the cells is in a gel state. Um, but in the lining of the arteries, blood is about half water. So it's a very liquid state, but when it gets next to the lining of an artery, which is a hydrophilic surface, that water can structure itself. And the way that it does that creates flow of the fluid. And so they've done this over and over again. This is the research out of uh, university of Washington, by Dr. Gerald Pollack. He, um, you know, they've done this with hydrophilic tubes. They put them in the water and they, they apply energy to the water and the water starts to flow on its own going through the tube. There's no pump. There's no nothing. And it's because of the way this, the water structures itself on the lining of the tube. And so, and then we show that when we stop the beating hearts, uh, we stop the heart beating uh, in, uh, in these animals, the blood continues to flow on its own. And so the question is, if the heart is not moving the blood or it does a little bit of pumping, like it does a little bit, like enough to get the blood moved through the heart really, but there's no way that it could, that it could create enough force to pump the blood throughout the entire body. And uh, even the, even the guy who originally described the flow of blood throughout the body, William Harvey even wrote to his colleagues and said, I don't think the heart is what's moving the blood. He said, I don't know what it is, but I don't know. I don't know. It's not the heart. The reason the heart is there. So, so why is it there then? You know? And so it, it really functions more like a, a hydraulic ram, which I didn't know what that was. And I, I had to go look up YouTube videos of hydraulic rams, but basically Hydrams operate, they're flow operated. So fluid is flowing into them, usually like from a reservoir down a tube, like the, the ram is lower than the reservoir is. So it's coming down and that flow mechanism is what activates it. And so in the book, I kind of, in my book, I detail like, you know, the, the exact steps and how the heart has homologous structures to a hydraulic ram and how it functions very much the same way. But the reason that it's there is that it, it's, it's quite fascinating actually. So one of the ways that water gets energized so that it can form these, these exclusion zones or these, these structured water on the line of the arteries is when it gets spiraled or vortexed in the presence of oxygen. There's always oxygen in the blood. Even the venous blood has oxygen in it. And so as it moves through the heart, the heart contracts in a spiral-like nature. Um, the muscles are oriented in a spiral pattern. And also when it flows through the valves, it kind of eddies on either side. That's vortexing. So in a way, the heart is energizing the blood so that when it gets into the arteries, it can form this fourth phase water and, and move itself. In a way, the heart is responsible for moving the blood, but not in the way that we think. Right? Yeah, we don't like I would think about it literally just pumping and providing yeah. the pressure needed to get the blood through all the arteries and veins and back. Yeah. And, and that's that's literally impossible based on the amount of force that the, the heart can create. And especially when, when the blood gets into the capillary and the, into the kind of the, the, the swamp there that where it's absorbing, you know, different uh, nutrients and things like that, that it almost stops right there, you know? So in order to get that moving again, it's just, it's impossible for the heart to do that. Um, it just doesn't add up. 
one reason the heart is there. So it's, it's vortexing the blood as it goes through in the presence of oxygen. I think it's no mistake that the blood goes from lungs back to the heart again. And, but then the, the other reason is that we think of, you know, when we go exercise or something, we think that um, all the, all the blood is pumped harder, right? But in reality, it's the demand of the tissues that's creating the flow of blood going faster. And so if we would go for a run, then all the blood would rush to the tissues on the arterial side of things, because the body needs oxygen and nutrients and things to, so you're running. And then it's, it's flowing from there back through the veins. And if the heart wasn't there to actually stop it, because the hydraulic ram is almost almost like a damming up organ. If it wasn't there to stop it, then all the pressure or all the blood would go over to the arterial side because the tissues are demanding it and the venous side would collapse. So it's there to maintain pressure in the system. Because if it wasn't there to slow that flow while we go for a run, then we would lose pressure in one side of the system or the other. And that would cause death because blood would stop flowing at that point. This has never even crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah. but it, How but, it actually works. Exactly. And it's, it's crazy because, you know, I was taught in school and all physicians are taught in school that the heart is this pumping organ and it forcefully pumps blood. And like I said, it does do a little bit of pumping but no more than just enough to move the blood through the atria and the ventricles, you know? Uh-huh. And so the two portions of it, other than that, it relies on, I mean, yeah, we contract our muscles a little bit and there's one way valves in the veins to keep the flow going one direction and stop the you know backlog and things like that. But to get the blood moving, it requires this structured water forming in the arteries that creates flow on its own. If you want more details on how that works, I can give you that, but that's the basic understanding of it. That's blowing my mind. I'm going to have to like think about this and re-listen to it just so I can figure out the process. Think about it though. Like if we, if we're talking about things like heart failure, how are we supposed to understand if we don't understand how the heart actually works? The thing that confirms all this for me is that one of the best ways to energize water is infrared light, get infrared light from the sun. That's the the original source of it. Like 40% of the energy or the rays or the wavelengths, I guess, from the sun are infrared. And so we can, we can kind of biohack that these days we can get an infrared sauna. And so if you look at the research on infrared sauna and heart failure, it is phenomenal. I don't understand why there's not an infrared sauna in every single cardiac rehab or cardiologist's office in the United States or in the world, because it is so phenomenal. And it makes sense that in heart failure, we think the heart is not its job, right? It's, it's failing, but we've misunderstood what the heart does. It's not there to pump the blood forcefully. So there's another reason why it's failing and it's failing because the fluid in the body is not getting moved like it's supposed to. So then we apply infrared to the body. We energize the water. We form the fourth phase water in the lining of the arteries. People in these studies get, you know, a reduction in edema, reduced heart size because, you know, the heart all of a sudden is functioning like it's supposed to again, increased energy, decreasing high blood pressure. It's phenomenal. I'm just thinking of treatment here. Someone with edema, you know, their legs are swollen, their heart is too big, or if they have heart disease in the family, the infrared sauna would be a great treatment, but also preventative. Yeah. And I think it's great for a lot of different things, but this is, right. this is one thing. In regards to the heart specifically. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like, if people just have swelling in general, edema, like the same kind of thing happens in the lymphatic vessels, you know, this is, that's how the lymph flows. There's no lymphatic pump, but the lymph still it's flows. True. You it's know? true. So uh, that's how it works. I mean, you have to ask yourself, how does, how does water get from the ground to the top of the the leaves and the top of a tree? This is how it happens. Fourth phase water forms in these trees and it brings the water up. It it moves it because of the energy gradient it creates. It's almost like 
Correct me if I'm wrong, but like an electron pump? I don't know if I would, I would call it that, but yeah, it is based on an energy gradient. So, okay. so water is a uh, hydrogen, right? Water has this unique ability to hold energy. It's unlike any other liquid that we know of. And when it holds energy and it gets next to a hydrophilic surface, it actually cleaves off one of the hydrogens. So you're left with an oxygen and a hydrogen. And oh, flashback to biochemistry. Yeah. And that oxygen and hydrogen combines with other oxygens and hydrogens. And they create like this hexagonal ring. And it teams up with other hexagonal rings. And you get this like planar structure, right? It looks uh-huh. like, a, I think of like a fence panel, you know? And that stacks on, they, those, those planar structures stack on each other. Think about it like in a loop around the whole artery. They form around the whole thing. And because the oxygen and the water is a bigger molecule and it's very negative and the hydrogen is a smaller molecule and it's very positive. When there's two hydrogens there, it's a balanced molecule. But when there's just, when they cleave off one of the hydrogens, now this, this zone of structured water is very electronegative because those oxygens are bigger, right? And then all the hydrogens are in the stream, uh, so to speak. And so that makes it a very positive. We get this energy gradient and it starts to drive flow. Okay. That makes sense now. Yeah. And the Uh, other thing is, is that when you get a very levels in like the lumen of the artery that are very positive, they start to repel each other. Right. And so when they repel each other, they start trying to get away and they just move and they go. Right. Um, And they create flow. And once flow happens in one direction, it just kind of keeps going. Yeah, it does. I just never thought about it. I just assumed the heart was responsible for pumping the blood around, but then you say the lymph, the lymph flows and there's no lymph pump. Exactly. You're totally right. Yeah. So and people say, oh, it's because of the movement of our bodies and everything. Well, well, am I, is it all just sitting still when I'm sleeping then? You know, no, it's not. It's, it's moving because of these mechanisms in the body. So we, we, we've really focused on like the biochemistry of the body, which is important. Um, but there's a physics side to us too. And I hate physics. So you got to dumb it down really to, simple. Well, we just went through the most, you know, physics I'm probably going to talk about. So. Yes. Yeah. The physics is not my, not my thing. Anatomy was not <laughs> my thing, but any type of biochemistry, biophysiology, I'm all in. The one thing you did say was that say 70 80 to 80% of our us is water. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you correlated like we're not sloshing around. We have structure to ourselves. Yeah. I never thought about that either. Well, if you just grip the, the waters in the, the gel tissue of your state. forearm right there. Yeah. Like it feels like jello, right? I can push it and it can give. Yeah. That's a gel. You know, my cells are are made up of water, but it's in a gel state. It's in the fourth you, phase the, state. The things you learn. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating cool. that people really want to go into that. Look into uh, Dr. Gerald Pollock. He's wrote a book called The Fourth Phase of Water. It's pretty fascinating. And then your book is called Understanding the Heart, and it will be out late winter, early spring, yeah, 2022, 20, end of the 2021, possibly 2022. Stay tuned to the website, resourceyourhealth.com, and you can find Dr. Stephen Hussey on Instagram and Twitter, where he will update you about that book. So that's the first myth. Heart is the main mover of the blood in the body. The second myth you said was all heart attacks happen by blockages. Yeah. share what's the what's the fact so when i started talking about this i can't tell you the number of people that reached out to me and said yeah i had a heart attack and they didn't they never found any block um, there was tissue death i had the symptoms of a heart attack but there was no blockage and so there's some really fascinating research by a guy named giorgio baraldi who was an italian pathophysiologist and he focused on the coronary arteries and um, he found that he did autopsies on, on people's hearts um, who died, whether they died of a heart attack or just of like an accident or whatever. And he found people who died of heart attacks with no atherosclerosis, no blockage whatsoever. 
And he found people who died in an accident who never had any previous history of heart disease who had complete blockages in their arteries, yet had no symptoms of heart disease when they were alive. Um, and so he was like, what's going on here? You know, he invented this, uh, have you ever been to like the body world exhibits and, uh-uh. and like, or the animal? The cadaver was enough for me. Yeah. Well, like they can, they, they'll put in like this neoprene or latex solution. They'll inject it into the arteries uh-huh. and wait for it to harden. And then they can dissolve away the tissue in the half of the arterial system of, of the animal or of the organ uh-huh. or whatever. Yeah. That's so how he, they build them. Okay. So he started doing this with hearts back in the fifties and sixties. He found that anywhere in the arterial system of the heart where there was a more than 70% stenosis or, you know, accumulation of atherosclerosis there, the heart had built a collateral system of arteries around that stenosis. It looks kind of like a Medusa head, you know, it's just like all these little arteries go around it. Right. And he's got pictures in in one of his books, but yeah, so a hundred percent of the time, if there was more than 70% uh, atherosclerosis buildup, it would, it would fully bypass it. So this explains why the research on bypass surgeries shows very little benefit because there's already a bypass there. There's already a mechanism. The body has built a mechanism to bypass it. And I've had cardiologists tell me that, you know, if it's an acute blockage situation, which does happen, then obviously your body can't, you know, fast enough build collateral arteries around it to to prevent damage. But if it's slow buildup of atherosclerosis, I found studies that show that those collateral arteries can form within four days, which is incredibly fast. That's cool. Yeah. And so, so that's one aspect of this. And so the other aspect is, is how can we get tissue death without blockage of blood to an area, to an area of heart tissue? And that has to do with the autonomic nervous system, which chiropractors talk a lot about, you know, we treat the nervous system, but if there's imbalance in the autonomic nervous system, which the autonomic nervous system is the system in our body that tells us we're in a safe or threatening environment, and we can get autonomic imbalance where we get a decrease in vagal tone or parasympathetic tone. And really they're supposed, both of them are supposed to be acting at the same time. They're always balancing each other out. We kind of think about it as we're activating one or the other, but in reality, they're always signaling. Both of them are always signaling and they're just balancing each other out. But if we get an inhibition of or decreased vagal tone, then the sympathetic is winning. When that happens to the heart, which the heart is incredibly connected to our emotional state. That's why we say, I love you with all my heart. It's the emotionally connecting organ. And if we get into a state where, you know, we have an imbalanced autonomic nervous system, then the signal to the heart can become more sympathetic. Okay. And so this is important because, so if I was to go for a run, right. And that would increase sympathetic signaling to my muscles so that I would, you know, my body would be able to perform enough to go for that run. That's fine. The legs, because when we start to get that lactic acid buildup, we can just stop if it gets too bad. And the lactic acid is pumped out within 30 minutes to an hour. And that's fine. However, when we get that sympathetic signaling to the heart, if it starts burning more glucose than it's supposed to, because it, it really prefers fatty acids and ketones, when it starts burning more glucose than it needs to, that can result in lactic acid buildup. And and the heart just can't stop beating. You can't like you can just stop going for a run if your legs hurt. Yeah, the heart can't stop beating. And so when we think about what angina is, sometimes it is decreased delivery of blood to an area, but lots of times it's a shift in metabolism in the heart. And that's creating lactic acid buildup from the, the heart switching to more like fermentation rather than aerobic glycolysis, you know, like, um, and so when that happens, people start getting angina and then if it happens too much, and so there's so much research that shows that heart attacks are more prevalent on stressful days of the year. Mondays are a big one. Major holidays, unfortunately, is very stressful for people. 
um, major sporting events when people bet all this money on things or are passionate about their team, like heart attacks happen more frequently then. Because if we're in this state where we've already got decreased vagal tone, this really stressful event that happens. That's why there's such a thing as Takatsubo cardiomyopathy, which is basically a broken heart syndrome. You know, uh, these things happen because the autonomic nervous system signaling to the heart is not working like it's supposed to. It, it triggers the, bot, the, the heart to burn more glucose than it wants to, creates lactic acid buildup. That creates a, you know, a pressure gradient in the heart. So usually the pressure is more where the blood's going in. But if there's a buildup of lactic acid and swelling, it can't get in to get tissue death there. And there was no blockage whatsoever. It was basically the signaling of the autonomic nervous system instructing the heart to do something that it doesn't really want to do. I know a girl, I think she was seven years old when she experienced her first heart attack. Seven years old. Mm-hmm. And her family life, it's, let's just say it's a mess. Mm-hmm. What she was experiencing, it totally makes sense that the stress she was under due to the circumstances in her family caused the heart attack. And you just explained how. That's yeah. And super that's cool. incredibly important. Like the autonomic nervous system, just like many things when we're born, not fully developed. And so it's incredibly, you know, for babies and young children to be getting almost like training for their autonomic system, So they learn what a baseline of safe is. If there's early childhood trauma, their autonomic nervous system is going to be off and their baseline of what's safe is going to be totally off. And so they're going to be more likely to get into that, that sympathetic dominance. It's incredibly important at young ages. That's why we look at babies with smiling faces and say soft, nice things to them, because we're trying to signal, Hey, you're safe. Right. That's just our, our go-to is what we do is what we're, you know, evolved to do. And uh-huh. we're telling the baby it's safe so that in that first six months to a year, which is most critically important, their autonomic nervous system learns a good baseline of safe that it can go in reference back to. That's so cool. <laughs> I have a bit, she just turned one and then I have a four-year-old and the four-year-old yeah. is his, his safe zone, I guess if you want to call it that. At nighttime, when he, when we go to bed, I still have to, you know, snuggle with him. Mommy, come snuggle with me. And it's not just touch. It's like, he's got a spoon with you, touch you every inch of the body as much as possible. And that would be his calming. Yeah. So every time I go to do this at night, I'm going to tell myself I'm helping out his heart. Yeah. Your, your training is autonomic nervous, which is more than just heart health. I mean, yeah. if, if that's off, it could cause all kinds of things. Yeah. All right. That was number two. Number three, cholesterol cause heart disease. Yeah. So Dive this, into that. Yeah. So short answer is no, um, <laughs> but we'll go into a little bit more, you know, for reference on this, I think people, if, if they haven't read it, uh, Ian Teicholtz book, the big fat surprise is a great reference for this. Also good calories, bad calories by Gary Tobbs. It's really interesting. So the idea that cholesterol causes heart disease and saturated fat and red meat and all, all those, you know, those three there cause heart disease came from you know, it was a time in the 1950s, disease was running rampant. It was starting to increase, I guess. People, uh, they were like, oh, I don't know how to prevent this. What do we do? And, they, and America wanted an answer. You know, Eisenhower had a heart attack and everybody's like, oh my gosh, you know? And so um, one guy gave them an answer and he did this study called, well, at first it was a six country study and then a seven country study. His guy name was Ansel Keys. He was a um, researcher at University of Minnesota. He basically took data uh, from different countries about how much saturated fat they ate and then how much heart disease they had. And he showed that the more saturated fats you ate, the more heart disease the country had. However, there's a lot of things wrong with that. One thing wrong with it is that he, there was data from 22 countries available and he picked the six and then later the seven that gave him what he wanted. Right. Um, that gave him, 
Yeah. It's a lot of research. Yeah. Right. And so, and then the other thing is, is that these studies are called epidemiology, which cannot prove anything. Epidemiology is the lowest form of research because it cannot show causation. It can only show association. So that's basically like saying, if I'm standing on the side of the street and I see a traffic jam in the road and I see that it's cloudy, I cannot say that the traffic jam caused the clouds. I cannot say the clouds caused the traffic jam. All I can say is that they're associated with each other because they're happening at the same time. Epidemiology studies are really should be used to formulate hypotheses, see what's associated with each other, and then test it with clinical trials yeah. or, with, or with RCTs and things. And that is rarely done in nutrition research because those are very expensive trials to do. And so basically all of our nutrition recommendations are based on epidemiological studies that cannot prove causation. And so as an example of that, let's say they did a study and it shows that red meat is associated with higher um, rates of heart disease. So what they do is they survey people to see how much saturated fatty and they see how much of them get heart disease. And they say, okay, it is associated with heart disease. However, if someone's really into their health and they're following the guidelines because they're into their health of not eating saturated fat and red meat, then those people will be the ones who report on the surveys that they're not eating that much, but they're also into their health. So they're more likely to be doing other healthy behaviors, like getting enough sleep and exercising and not smoking and not drinking and managing their stress and all this kind of stuff because they're into their health, eating more whole foods in general, right? And if someone doesn't care about the health guidelines, they don't care about their health as much and they're eating red meat and saturated fat more uh, because they're not listening to those guidelines, but they don't care about their health. So they're more likely to be smoking and drinking and not sleeping well and have a high stress job and those types of things. You cannot uh, flush out the differences between those, which is why there's only an association. You can't prove that one caused the other. There's so many confounding factors. They, have, they call it healthy user bias, right? So all of our nutrition research is pretty much our nutrition guidelines are based on this type of research. Now, here's the funny thing. So Ansel Keys came up with this hypothesis, right? Based on these studies that he did. And then they started testing it. There was all these studies. There was the Minnesota coronary experiment. There was the Helsinki businessman study. There was the um, Sydney. And you've done your research. Yeah, there was all these, there was all these studies that basically, you know, randomized clinical trials where they replaced saturated fat with unsaturated fat, with things like margarine and vegetable oils and things like that. And they all found, every single one of them found that the more unsaturated fat, like vegetable oils and, and margarine, things like that you put into the diet, the more heart disease, the more mortality, the more cancer you had, everything. And so it was wrong from the beginning. However, in the Minnesota coronary experiment, that study ended in, I'm going to mess up the dates, but it ended a certain year and they didn't get the result they wanted. And so they didn't so publish they manipulated. it. So they, or no, did they, they, publish did, it? they didn't right. publish it until 16 years later. They did that. Um, and they published it in a small journal that nobody ever reads. Instead of publishing it in a New England Journal of Medicine, which they could have done, they published it in like the study or the journal atherosclerosis, which nobody pays attention to. Yeah. And so, so then this guy named Chris Ramsden came and he dug up the data and he found the data from these studies back then. And he, he found that they left out some data too from the study. And it actually showed that for every 30 points, your cholesterol decreased, you had a um, 1% higher uh, risk of mortality. So completely so opposite of what they completely were opposite of what the mainstream is because because when Ansel Keith came out with that that theory they went for it they ran with it it was yeah. on the cover of Time you know the sad face with the bacon you know like all this stuff like people see that and and they already ran with it and there was all this invested you know marketing in it and they went with it there was all this financial backing from like cereal companies and companies that are low in saturated fat and red meat things like that 
and it got so lost, um, even though mm-hmm. the research does not support that going forward. In the beginning, it didn't. And all the research from, since then doesn't. It's really, really interesting when you trace that. And then you can look at the fact that cholesterol is, is incredibly important for us. It's what forms all our sex hormones. It helps with cell communication. It's what makes all our LDLs, what transports our fat-soluble vitamins. Cholesterol is the backbone for vitamin D. It helps with insulin receptors, which is why when people go on statins, there's a high prevalence of type two diabetes when they go on those. It helps us make our antioxidants in our liver. It is incredibly, incredibly important. Putting it in the floor, lowering it as low as we can get it may not be the best idea. Uh, That's not medical advice for anybody, but like that, it may not be the best idea. Now, I think for me, the jury is still somewhat out as far as like, if your cholesterol goes really, really high, if that's bad for you. But I tend to think that state of low inflammation and good insulin sensitivity, meaning you're metabolically healthy, that that is not an issue. But there are some studies that are going to be done hopefully soon. But yeah, I have to stay in touch with you because I, so I pull medical records. I read labs. That's what I do. And uh, I've seen really, really ugly cholesterol panels, like in the 2000s, 3000s of cholesterol and when it should be between that 155 to 200 range. And then the doctors will say to them, what, how are you alive? Why why are you not dead with Mm -hmm. these numbers? Right? So this cholesterol itself gets such a bad rap Mm -hmm. that you just talked about that when we see these numbers, we like freak out and we automatically think, you know, my, my arteries are getting clogged up and I'm going to have a heart, heart attack. And when really that's not the case. Right. And we're still understanding what this cholesterol is, the numbers of it per se on the lab. How is someone just fine at 200 and someone else is just fine at 2,500? Mm-hmm. What's causing the 2,500 and how do we get it down? And the funny thing is I literally was talking to a guy last week about this. His lab, we traced back his labs for like the last couple of years. So I had a, several different labs throughout that time. And one marker was like 2047 for the cholesterol when all other cholesterol markers were within the healthy range. It was just like, what happened then? Why all of a sudden was that through the roof? And that's when the doctor was like, how are you not dead? You should have clogged arteries with this. Mm -hmm. Really? And I mean, there's so much evidence that suggests that, yeah, yes. We like with atherosclerosis, there's cholesterol in the lining of the artery, which is why it's been blamed right? But just because it's there, I mean, that's an association. We see it there at the same time. Can't say that that was the cause. Uh, and so the real cause in my head, based on what I've seen is inflammation, oxidative stress, those things, when they get to be high amounts in the body, they damage the lining of the artery and the body has to respond. If the pick is damaged too much, that thing can rupture, we get a dissection, you know? And so it responds by using cholesterol and minerals, spackle almost to kind of patch up the area. And if it keeps getting more inflamed, it just gets more and more packed on top of it. And then if that happens in a coronary artery, the body bypasses it. You know, if it's too much, the body goes around it. The, the real threat there is, which can happen is when we get newly formed atherosclerosis there, that's unstable, they say, and we get some acute stressful trigger that causes, you know, high clotting factors. And then also like a constriction of the artery um, so intense that it breaks it off. And when it breaks it off, the body forms clots, tries to repair it. And then we get that clotted artery. So that is a real thing that definitely happens. But like we talked about before, you can also get the heart attacks without the blockages. That's the thinking, I guess, as to why cholesterol would cause heart disease, but cholesterol would never go into the lining of an artery from what I can tell, unless there was this damage and inflammation there in the first place. 
So really we should be focusing on those things that cause damage and inflammation and narrowly focusing on this one biomarker, this one panel, a cholesterol panel was incredibly naive in my opinion, because no disease is caused by one thing. That's just crazy talk in my opinion. And yeah. We're surrounded by so many different stimuluses that, uh, that there's no way that one thing can be the cause of all disease or, or a disease. Yeah. I always say that they're pieces of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Like people will say to me, well, I have leaky gut and that's why I have X, Y, Z. I have this and that's why I have that. I'm like, no leaky guts. I'm sure you have it because we live in 21st century environment. That's the bottom line, but it's just a piece of the puzzle. That's all. Mm-hmm. And so I really like that. I just wanted to say real quick too, as we were talking about this research, you and I went to the same school, not the same years, but we went to the same school and we were grilled on research, grilled. And I can't even tell you guys how grilled we were on how to scrutinize research. So just be very careful about what research you do find and look into their motives to even creating the research project to begin with, because they always have to have some type of motive. Okay, as we're finishing up here, Steve, Dr. Steven, what would be your tip for having a healthier heart? Yeah, my I give I give people like three areas to focus on. Like these are the three imbalances that I think drive most disease, but specifically heart disease. One is is stay metabolically flexible, which means have a healthy metabolism, which means stay insulin sensitive. Basically, for the lay listener, that means eat whole foods. There's all this talk about you know carnivore diets and ketogenic diets and all this stuff and a ketogenic diet is a way to heal your metabolism very quickly, but it's not necessarily, it's not necessary to do that long-term to stay metabolically flexible. So eat whole foods is kind of the, the take home there. Second thing is decrease inflammation and oxidative stress. And so this can be caused by many, many different things. It can be caused by you know, heavy metals, toxins in the environment, our stress levels, toxic foods, poor metabolic health can lead to these inflammation and oxidative stress. So that is incredibly important for that. And then the third one is do things that help create balance in your autonomic nervous system. And so that could be things like, you know, having meaningful, loving relationships, um, spending time in nature, getting sunlight, you know, meditation, yoga, prayer, whatever people want to do, you know, things that create balance in your autonomic nervous system, you know, turn your brain off, that kind of stuff, good sleep, all those types of things. Yeah. Just thinking about this, my, I have a family member with some heart problems, quote, heart problems didn't arise until very, very stressful events happened last year within the family. Um, in fact, both my grandparents died within 10 days of each other. Wow. And that was like the onset of it all. And then just, you know, dealing with parent deaths, you have to deal with, with uh, siblings and yeah. all that ugly stuff. It just brought to pass heart problems. Mm-hmm. And, and I've gone back and looked at the labs of this family member, and I found I can trace back a virus 10 years back, mm-hmm. but it's just been there at such a, you know, sometimes it's active, sometimes it's not. And to the point where sometimes it would be like, oh, you have positive Epstein-Barr. If someone were to run a mono test on you, it would come back positive, which is why you can fall asleep when you have five little kids underneath the age of five sitting, playing around you you can still fall asleep. Mm-hmm. But it, it came back as when, he, when the heart issues arose was when the autonomic nervous system got yeah. thrown out of place with all the stressors happening in life, not to yeah. mention COVID on top of everything else. Yeah. I think that like the symptoms we see people with like chronic heart disease, like whether it's heart failure or um, angina, things like that are more like autonomic nervous system based. And then like, you know, the acute situations happen 
when there's underlying inflammation, oxidative stress, poor metabolic health, those types of things. And then there's a big stressor on top of it. Yeah. That's when the acute situations happen. But if there's generally good information, you know, general good metabolic health and you get a stressor, then you start getting these weird, you know, angina and heart failure type things, you know. Cool correlation. I always tell people, you know, events in your life can affect your health and you just proved it. It can mm-hmm. specifically affect, affect your heart and your heart health. That's right. So, all right, Dr. Steven, that was awesome. Just to recap, guys, the three myths of heart disease that we've talked about is one, heart is the main mover of blood in the body. Two, all heart attacks happen by blockages. Three, saturated fat and cholesterol lead to heart disease. If you want to learn more about these, be sure to stay tuned to his book, Understanding the Heart. You can get all the updates on his website at resourceyourhealth.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I hope you learned as much as I did from that discussion. Now, I'm in need of your help. I'm writing a book because of overwhelming requests. I'll be teaching you how to transform those normal labs into answers, healing, and hope. Whether you're a practitioner or you're trying to take charge of your own health, what questions do you have about blood work and labs? I'd love to answer those questions inside the book. To submit your questions for a chance to be answered within those pages, text 855-499-2555. Again, that's 855 855- Four nine nine two five five five. Then stay tuned. You just might have a special place inside the Q and A at the end of each chapter. Come join the membership. You not only get access to me on live calls, but you also get the answers to questions just like yours on my private podcast. This level of attention and help is only available inside my membership. So stop relying on late night Google searches and start getting the answers and relief you desire. I can't wait to welcome you in. I would also love to welcome you in to the six week free to heal program. That's the right fit for you. We begin October 4th. Learn more about the program and the membership by going to drkylieburton.com. See you on the inside.